Welcome to the first episode of the Cold Brew Podcast. I am so glad you are here. I'm so glad I am here. I'm just glad we are all here and alive and stuff, you know, with all the things going on. As I record this episode, the majority of America, and I guess the world, are in a shelter-in-place order, and we have been for several weeks due to the coronavirus. My family, personally, has been sheltering in place since, like, May 13th-ish, which is well over a month at this point, um, and our order on Oahu is actually in effect now until May 30th. So, like I just said, we live on Oahu in Hawaii, which is the island with Honolulu and Waikiki, and there have been 596 confirmed cases as of today. And you guys, like, this is a small place. That's insane. But also, this number is all the islands, but we have the majority of the cases here on Oahu. And I mean, this is such a strange time to be alive, like, we're walking around in masks. I don't know. It's just all crazy. It is such a crazy time. But also not that I, as a stay-at-home mom and a military spouse, left my house that much before, but not being able to go to the beach and stuff in Hawaii is kind of a sad time, which I know most of you are rolling your eyes at that, but yeah. I mean, it's just not fun for anybody. This is not fun for anybody. I hope you are all staying healthy and at home as much as you can, and if you are an essential worker listening to this, thank you, thank you, thank you. Y'all are the real MVPs. You are listening to Cold Brew, a true crime podcast fueled by cold brew coffee. I'm your host, Caitlin Brewer, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I'd love to connect on social media. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Cold Brew Crime. Okay, I've got my coffee. Black just like I like it. (laughs) That's why cold brew is my jam. It's brewed cold and over a longer period of time, so it makes it a little sweeter and less bitter than hot coffee, Um, like hot brewed coffee, you know. So it's just better. This cold brew actually comes from Appalachian Java, the coffee shop in my tiny hometown of Burnsville, North Carolina. They were so sweet and sent me their Einstein blend, which is from Ingenious Coffee Roasters in Marion, North Carolina, which is just down the road from Burnsville. And this blend is a dark roast that was coarsely ground up, so it's perfect and ready to go for cold brew. So I'm really enjoying it. I'm almost done with my bag, actually, which is kind of an issue. But Burnsville, you guys, is so small that when I tell people we don't even have a Walmart, they are shook, legit. Uh, It's in like the mountains of Western North Carolina, about an hour from Asheville or so. And App Java is just slap dab in the middle of town, kind of right on Main Street. They have cute little outside seating that gives you a great view of the town and people driving by. And yeah, it's just such a good, nice environment. Every time I get food from there, it's always a toss up between the chicken melt and the app stacker. The app stacker, you guys, has ham, turkey, and bacon And it has this Vidalia onion sauce that I didn't even know I needed in my life, but it is my favorite. They have so many delicious coffee drinks, too. Everybody there that makes coffee, I just feel like, puts so much love into it. Um, Unfortunately, I cannot stray away from this 
pecan swirl, pecan swirl, whatever you want to call it, daily brewed coffee that they have. I get it legit every time because it just makes me feel so warm and cozy. It's so good. But most importantly, you guys, they have homemade oatmeal cream pies that are as big as your head. I am not exaggerating. They are just like a drop of heaven down here on earth, you know? They are so good. So if you're ever in Burnsville, North Carolina, please go say hi to these lovely people. Even if it's just to grab a coffee and an oatmeal cream pie to go, go give them a follow on Instagram at Appalachian Java and over on Facebook at Appalachian Java Cafe. I'm sure they would love to have you. They post their specials on there. I know right now they're doing curbside pickup and you can order online. Okay, so now that you know what I'm drinking, Let's take a quick break and then get on to the murder. The case that I am sharing with you this week takes place in Boone, North Carolina. If you don't know, Boone is the home of Appalachian State University the beloved Appalachian State University, which is where I graduated college from. And it is such a quaint little college town. It is so near and dear to my heart. It holds so many memories for me. And I just miss it so much. I miss being home (laughs) in the mountains. And I miss college. And yeah, it's just a good time in life. So Boone and the surrounding areas are referred to as the high country because of their extremely high elevation. It is such a beautiful place. There's just awesome communities all around, incredible hikes in Boone and on the Blue Ridge Parkway and like the Blue Ridge Parkway. If you've never been, please go. It's breathtaking. And yeah, there's just so many outdoorsy, naturey, beautiful things to do and see there. Even though App State is a decent sized school because we beat Michigan State that one time, you know, I'm not going to get into football because I actually know nothing, but Boone is still a really small town regardless of the school. I mean, like a one high school kind of town still. So uh, in the 2010 census, the population for Boone was only around 17,000, which I can't really speak that much about numbers and stuff, but that's what Wikipedia said. Thursday, February 3rd, 1972. It had been snowing in Boone since around 3 p.m., and by that evening, there was at least three to four inches of snow on the ground, and the wind was serious. Boone winters, you guys, are no joke. That high elevation can really give you a run for your money up there. I'm talking like that walk to class in a negative 21 degree wind chill is something I will never forget and don't wish upon my worst enemy. Like, that kind of cold. So, the Durham family had been in Boone for almost a year and a half. Bryce Durham, the father, age 51, was a native of Wilkes County, but the family had been living in Mount Airy, where Bryce was a car salesman. Upon moving to Boone, Brian purchased the... Brian? My husband's name is Brian, but this man's name is Bryce. (laughs) I'm probably not even going to edit that out. Okay, Bryce purchased the modern... Buick Pontiac dealership that was on East King Street. I don't think this dealership still exists because 
all these car companies have basically been bought out by larger ones, and they're all under one umbrella now, you know. So, I tried to make assumptions about which dealership would be the modern Buick Pontiac dealership now, and I don't, I don't even know. If you're familiar with Boone, this would kind of be near Dos Amigos Mexican Restaurant, for anybody listening that knows that. This was a really exciting step for Bryce and his family. You know, he went from being a car salesman to this huge jump of, I'm going to buy my own dealership and run the thing. So locals said that this family really kept to themselves. They were probably still kind of getting settled within the Boone community. Because, I mean, I've moved several times. And especially in a small place like Boone, it's kind of hard to find your people. It's hard to feel comfortable And yeah, especially where everybody knows everybody. So I'm not shocked that they still were getting settled. On that evening of February 3rd, there was a rotary meeting at Appalachian Ski Mountain, which was in Blowing Rock, just a couple miles outside of Boone. And if you don't know, Boone and Blowing Rock have some beautiful ski resorts and ski slopes and stuff. And fun fact, I've actually never been skiing or snowboarding and that's kind of like breaking a rule if you go to app that's just like a thing you do and I've never done it so there we go anyway so they're at this rotary meeting and they were there because they were green berets training in the area like at app ski mountain and they were going to give a demonstration to the club which like for me this sounds really far-fetched but I don't know what people did in 1972 This sounds really cool. I would have loved to see it. Since the weather, you know, was awful, not many members showed. But Bryce was the kind of guy that if he said, you know, he stood by his word. If he said he was going somewhere, he was going to be there. You could expect him to show up no matter what. When Bryce left the event, one of the other members drove behind him because, you know, they didn't have cell phones and the roads were probably bad. So they wanted to stay safe and, you know, if one of them needed help or had car trouble, the other one was close by. He followed Bryce to the dealership and estimated that he arrived around 8.30 that night. Earlier that day, Bryce had an employee, and I quote, gas up the Jimmy, (laughs) which was a car that had just arrived to the dealership. This vehicle was basically the older model GMC Blazer. If you don't remember the Blazer, look it up. It was a faithful and loyal car. Uh, It was kind of like a Jeep, four-door SUV type, and had four-wheel drive. Virginia Durham, the mother, age 45, was still at the dealership working on the books when Bryce got back. That was her job. She took care, you know, of the accounting stuff at the dealership. Their son, Bobby Joe, age 18, who was a student at App State, was also at the dealership, I think just like studying, and was there with his mom waiting for his dad to come back so they could all go home together in this new four-wheel drive vehicle. The Durham's home was located at 187 Clyde Townsend Road. This is on the west side of Boone and about two miles from the dealership, maybe a little farther Uh, This road, Clyde Townsend Road, was off of the Highway 105 bypass, which serves as a connector for Highway 105 and Highway 321. These are two major roads in Watauga County, 
I know that doesn't mean much to most of you, but for reference, if you lived in Boone, you knew where these roads were. My last apartment in Boone actually was on the corner of this 105 bypass and 321. So like legit two minutes down the road from the Durham's home. And I'm still mind blown that I never knew about this case the whole time I was in Boone. It's probably for the better because I probably would have freaked myself out about it. But there is a few photos online of the house. It appears to have been mainly brick, a really nice looking house. Um, And it had tan paneling in the middle that appeared to be like two levels. So the center was two levels. And then there was large window on the left side that looked to be like the main living room area. And then on the right side of the home was some double garage doors. So on this night, several neighbors recall seeing and hearing the SUV vehicle go up the hill or attempt to go up the hill to the Durham's house. If this was later in the day and it started snowing at three, you know, I can totally imagine what this hill looked like. Fresh laid snow, potentially ice underneath, The tires could have definitely spun multiple times trying to make it up this hill. You know, this could have been, this could have been a very hefty endeavor for this little family. And I can just picture Virginia in the passenger seat being like, we should have came home earlier. We should have left sooner because of the snow. Okay, so now we know that the Durham's got home. Let's switch scenes a little bit. The Durham's daughter, Jenny, who was 19, and her husband, Troy Hall, had recently gotten married and were living in a nearby mobile home at Greenway Village, which is what it was called then, which was roughly like four miles from the Durham's house. This mobile home park is actually the same mobile home park that is beside the Boone Walmart today on Greenway Road. So I'm unsure if it's still called Greenway Village, but yeah, this is the area in which their mobile home was. Troy had been at the library earlier that evening to study, and there was proof that he had checked out a library book that evening. Also, a friend saw him outside the library around 8. Earlier that day, Bryce had actually given Jenny a ride home from the university when she called him saying she didn't want to drive herself because of the weather. And Jenny recalled that during that ride, her father expressed his concern about how infrequently she had seen the family since getting married And that, you know, he was kind of just dissatisfied with some of her decisions since becoming married. Apparently, she was going to drop out of college after the semester was over. Jenny says they resolved their discussion. And when they departed, she says that he seemed, you know, pretty happy, pleased with how their conversation went. And she didn't see anything wrong. I'm going to take a quick break. So hang on. Okay, so on that night, Troy Hall came home around 10 p.m. The couple settled in and started watching the Winter Olympics before, unfortunately, their cable went out due to the storm. So they just started listening to some music on their tape player, you know, just make the best of it. Shortly after their phone rang, Troy answered, and from what he could remember, the voice on the other end said, Help! They've got Bobby and Bryce in a back room. Then the line was abruptly cut off and the phone went dead. Troy, you know, tried to call back and it didn't go through, just a busy signal. So he relays this to his wife, saying that it sounded like her mom, Virginia. He even asked her if, you know, Virginia would joke about something like that. And Jenny, probably honestly a little offended that he even said that, 
reassured them that it would not be a joke. That's just not something she would joke about. So the couple decided that they needed to check on the family immediately. They hurried to get dressed and got in the car. Of course, in true Boone fashion, Troy's car would not start because hashtag cold. So the couple knew that a nearby neighbor had an engine block heater in his car, which I googled this because I didn't know what that was, and it basically keeps your engine warm in extremely cold temperatures. They ran over to this guy to ask him for a ride, and he, you know, obviously agrees when once they tell him the situation. This neighbor was actually the manager of this mobile home park and was also a private investigator. Cecil Small agreed to drive them, and he himself has a really interesting story. He's described by media sources as a middle-aged, heavy-set, good old boy from North Carolina who just so happened to be driving through Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, while traveling home from a trip. This is the same day as the JFK assassination. According to Cecil, he got rerouted because of the president's motorcade and was essentially lost when he pulled over in front of the Texas School Book Depository to ask for some directions. He ended up offering a man a ride that seemed to be going in the same direction he wanted to go, and Cecil Small vowed, even on his deathbed, that that man was none other than Lee Harvey Oswald. And if this is in fact true, Oswald may not have been the shooter that was arrested for killing the president. So, do with that what you will. Now that you know this dude's story, let's get back to Boone. The three make it to the Durham residence. It was about four miles away. And what would normally be like a real quick little trip took close to 20-30 minutes because of the weather. Which, yeah, I mean, Boone weather, again, is no joke. Of course, when they get to the house... They can't make it up this hill. (laughs) You know, they park. Jenny waits in the car while her husband and Cecil go walk up the hill to go check it all out. All right, they make it up the hill. They get to the house. All the lights are on. They cannot open any of the doors. All the doors appear to be locked. And they're having a hard time getting into the house. They manage to gain access to the home by the garage door that appeared to be broken or malfunctioning. It was left unlatched so they could raise and lower the door by hand. And they were able to just kind of like slide under the door and get into the garage. I personally know a little about garage doors as my dad has been installing them my entire life. And this part really intrigues me because I feel like this garage door plays an important part of this story. If the garage door was malfunctioning and Bryce had left it unlatched so he could raise and lower it by hand, still get in through the garage then this could have created an easy entry for an intruder. Mainly it's like kitchen into the garage. Most people leave that door unlocked because, you know, essentially the garage door is locked and somebody can't get through. But in this case, maybe they didn't lock the side door and somebody could have gotten in earlier in the day and had been waiting inside for the family or just knew, like had scoped it out and knew that they could come in or hoped that they could come in through the garage door. I mean, this is just my own theory, but since it's how Troy and Cecil got in, I kind of feel like it's safe to say that that's a possibility, that the garage door could have been the point of entry for the intruders. Once Troy and Cecil get into the home, they find what was normally a neat and tidy house just totally overturned. 
Picture frames were knocked off the walls. Dresser drawers had been completely emptied on all the floor, you know, like everywhere, all over the floor. Furniture flipped over. Kitchen cabinets were flung open. The place was just ransacked. Like it was just a mess. Immediately they noticed the phone had been disconnected from the wall and the receiver was lying on the floor. So that would in fact explain why Virginia's call was abruptly ended. They also noticed blood spatter near the television. So they are trying to process all of this. They hear the sound of running water and they followed it to the first floor bathroom. In the first floor bathroom, they find Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby Joe all aligned and draped over the edge of the bathtub. Their heads were completely submerged in the water. They were fully clothed and their hands were tied together behind their backs. I can only imagine that moment. So the water was still running, the tub is full to the rim, but somehow there was no water, not even a drop on the floor or like on the wall, like no signs of a struggle and no, just like no evidence that anyone else had even been in this bathroom. So immediately, you know, they're like, oh, OMG, I'm sure that's what they said, OMG, we need to call the police. Um, None of the phones in the house work, so they run over to a neighbor's house to call the Boone police, and John Tester, the dispatcher on duty, logged the initial report at 10.50 Thursday night. He said that the caller seemed to be mighty shook up and was hard to get information out of. Tester immediately notified the night officers of this report, you know, and basically everyone headed over to the Durham house. Officers start arriving to the scene a little after 11 p.m., and when they enter the home, they noted a few things immediately. The TV was still on. There were two full glasses of soda, but also a half-empty glass of soda, and some partially eaten chicken on a plate by the half-empty soda glass. And the rest of the baked chicken was on the kitchen table, there were also um, like cards scattered on the floor that looked like somebody might have been playing a game or the family had been playing a game. So while searching the home, the officers noticed that a considerable amount of things appeared to be taken from the home. Mrs. Durham's purse and the wallets of the two men had been emptied or at least, you know, like sorted through. But also left behind was a bank deposit bag on the dining room chair with an undisclosed amount of cash inside. So, like, why are you going to take the money out their wallets, but not this bank deposit bag? So, Bryce was known to own several guns also, and none of those could be found. And it looked like several, excuse me, this is a tongue twister, several silver serving platters seemed to be missing as well from, like, the china cabinet. They also found a pair of broken glasses in the hallway leading into the television room. Jenny confirmed that these glasses belonged to her father. She said that Bobby Joe probably sitting on the couch, was served first because that's just the way it worked and that the cards were in front of him because he had told her weeks prior that he wanted to beat solitaire. So Jenny kind of just assumed that they were all, you know, just settling in, eating a late dinner or an evening snack, about to watch this nine o'clock movie. You know, we're just about to enjoy this snowy, cozy evening at home. The autopsy results would show that all three victims had rope burns around their necks, Virginia alone died of strangulation, 
and was then placed in the tub. But Bryce and Bobby Joe were alive when they were submerged into the water, but both had also had rope burns. So they were attempted to be strangled, but then eventually drowned. Bryce still had a cord loosely tied around his neck also. The bodies of Bryce and Virginia had evidence of blunt force trauma. Bryce had a skull fracture and Virginia's nose had been bloodied before her death, which seemed to be the blood spatter that was found near the television. There were no defensive wounds present on any of the bodies, which led the coroner to believe that there had to be more than one attacker for this to happen, you know, as efficiently as it did. Because, I mean, apparently Bobby Joe was a pretty stout dude. So the neighbors told officers that their dogs started barking aggressively around 10.20 that night. So it's possible that when the intruders left the Durham's home, they may have been planning to hit the surrounding homes as well. And that these dogs just caught them off guard. Okay, hold on. I gotta chug some coffee real quick. Real talk though. This coffee, this cold brew is making me a little jittery. (laughs) Okay, so... A little before midnight, Sheriff Carroll learned about a green and white GMC Jimmy that had stalled in a ditch or was stalled in a ditch about two miles away from the Durham's home on Poplar Grove Road. The engine was still running with the windshield wipers on, but no one was inside. In the back seat, they found silver platters from the Durham home inside a silk pillowcase and that you could also tell that there was multiple tire tracks like the jimmy tire tracks and another car tire tracks so clearly someone had been following them before the jimmy was abandoned eventually four men were arrested in suspicion of the murders two were released quickly due to lack of evidence while the other two jerry casada and dean chandler were indicted By January of 1974, both Casada and Chandler were released also because of lack of evidence. A few articles stated Chandler had confessed to being an accomplice to robbery, like he was aware of, you know, this, that they were going to burglarize this home, but not the murders. You know, he was probably hoping for a lighter sentence. Um, He also had other large burglary charges. That's kind of who he was, <laughs> just a burglar. Um, so, you know, he produced this confession. He noted some extensive facts about the case, but in the end, they just didn't all add up. He mentioned bullet holes and or that the victims had been shot, which none of them had. Personally, I'm still kind of on the fence about whether or not these men were actually the right people for the crime. And then they just didn't, you know, like they just couldn't prove enough which happens all the time. Some of the facts that Chandler stated kind of were just a little too specific to be made up. But then again, we don't know what the media said back then or what was released. So he could have technically read it in the papers, but unfortunately now we can't find all those papers. So there's only a few still online. As of today, no one else has been charged for the murders of Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby Joe Durham. Troy and Jenny Hall moved to Wilkes County not long after the murders and eventually divorced in 1976. Neither of them were ever official suspects in this case. Um, They were both cleared pretty early on. Troy became an attorney and owns a construction company in Georgia. 
Jenny remarried and lives in Washington State as of 2012. Watauga County authorities claim that they are still actively investigating the Durham murders and that there is a $40,000 reward for, you know, information leading to an arrest for these crimes. They still have the rope that was found around Bryce Durham's neck and they are still periodically running fingerprints from the scene through DNA system thing to see if they can get a match. Okay, so I do want to talk real quick about a few theories. There were several rumors around town about the motive of this crime. A popular theory at the time was that Bryce had revealed um, one of the ringleaders of a car dealership scam in Surrey County that involved rolling back the miles on vehicles before selling them to customers, just like not cool, and that that person might have come after the Durhams. Some authorities believe that it was a professional hit, which is why the job still got done despite of the awful weather. Another theory is that Troy and Jenny set this whole thing up, which is just disgusting. As Jenny would be left the sole heir of the Durham estate, she received close to a quarter of a million dollars after these murders. A few people that knew the family said that they had been pressuring her to leave Troy and that there were just some troubles within the marriage. Several people wonder if Virginia did have access to the phone, why she didn't just ask the operator to send the police because that was what you would normally do pre-911. Troy also asked for a lawyer after a single police interview but like I said earlier, they were both ruled out as suspects pretty early in the investigation. You know, everybody has their theory, but almost all of them were dead ends. Personally, I still kind of think that the men originally charged had something to do with it. The guy who confessed probably wasn't directly involved with the murder part. They probably left him out on purpose, which could explain why he got some parts of the story wrong. I think he heard about the murders in the media. He started piecing the puzzles together. Also, there was some people that thought that the Green Berets did it, which, no thanks. I don't know. I'm just still so shocked that this type of crime could even happen in a small town like Boone. I just, mm, it's crazy. All right, that's all I have for you on this first episode. I hope you enjoyed listening and you're still here with me and your coffee's empty like mine. I'm definitely gonna have to go eat like a full meal now because I have so much caffeine in me. I would love to hear your thoughts and theories on this case. You can connect with me on social media at Cold Brew Crime. Cold Brew is recorded, edited, and produced by me. To be sure you don't miss future episodes, please subscribe to Cold Brew True Crime Podcast wherever you listen. And if you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I would be so grateful. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you all stay healthy out there and happy. And yeah, I'll see you soon.